0: This is a parental advisory for this episode. We're going to be covering a lot of heavy topics. This is not for kids. Again, just giving you a warning. This episode will not be good for kids. Hello and welcome back to Zach's Fact Shack. So today is going to be a little different than any other episode I've ever done. We're going to be covering some pretty dark material that's been, that that has come out recently and to be honest with you pretty sad material i had the unfortunate privilege i guess to wake up this morning to a lot of news about a very large denomination of churches in america and it was not pretty at all, what was said? Um, it's it's pretty pretty sad. Um, let me, let me just go ahead and let's get into this. So today, I'm going to start out with a CNN article. It's the quickest place you can find it, um, and then I will actually go to the report itself, and we will discover for ourselves what exactly took place. So CNN states that the investigative firm hired by the Southern Baptist Convention to look into allegations of sexual abuse allegations being mishandled. This investigative firm combed through documents and interviewed current and former executive committee members, staff, trustees, witnesses, and sexual abuse of uh, survivors. In total, approximately 330 people were interviewed. The investigation targeted the period between January 1st, 2000 and June 14th, 2021. This is what it found. Quote from the CNN article, The SBC's response to sexual abuse allegations over the course of two decades was largely driven by a small cadre of staff as well as its outside lawyers. Quote, abuse allegations were often mishandled in a manner that involved the mistreatment of survivors. The report highlighted that a list started as early as 2007 was maintained by an executive committee staff member who had been documenting reports of abuse for more than a decade. However, there was no indication that the executive committee staff took any action to ensure that the accused ministers were no longer in positions of power at Southern Baptist Churches. The most recent list that was prepared by this staff member contained the names of 703 abusers with 409 believed to be Southern Baptist Church affiliated at some point in time. Numerous accounts included in the timeline indicate some within the executive committee leadership tried to minimize or even ignore the allegations to protect SBC's reputation and to avoid the risk of legal liability for sexual abuse at its churches. I have read through a good portion of this report. Now, don't get me wrong. This report is over 288 pages. I could not read all of that in one day. And there are two appendices that go with it that I have not even touched yet. But short of that, I have read as much as I could in the time that I've had it, and I want to bring to you what I have read, and leave it to you, to decide what you think needs to be done. I for back for a little bit of a backstory. I grew up a pastor's kid of Southern Baptist churches. That's that's all I've ever known. Right? I grew up in a little bitty church um, in a little bitty town. It was the church that you went to in that town. It was the good old boy system, right? If you were going to get any business or get any votes, you went to church. And that just happened to be that church. My dad had been called to that in the early uh, 90s, or I guess mid-90s at that point, and was there for 10 years, felt called to leave, and was called to another church in the same county, but further down the road a few years later, and was there for some 15 years. The SBC is what I have known all my life. My grandfather is, has been a Southern Baptist preacher most of his life. It's what I know. These people that are covered in this report are people that I have looked up to, people that I have uh, learned from, that I've read their books about, that I've sought wisdom from. And don't get me wrong. I understand and have always understood that people are people. They make mistakes. They make errors. They rebel against God. They do their own thing. But it's always a little bit depressing whenever you find out that somebody who you've looked up to for so many years messed up so, so horribly. I am not casting judgment on anyone. Again, I understand that everyone has their problems, everyone has their sin. Everyone has their consequences that they have to deal with. I am also not negating all the things we're going to cover in this. And the reality is this is dark and the actions that I'm going to cover in this are evil. They seem to be credible, from what I can read in the, in the report, they do do a really good job of showing both sides of the story as best they can. Obviously, to some degree, people do not tell the truth. There will be um, a period where you have to figure out who's telling the truth because somebody's lying. But as all the stories begin to corroborate each other, you start to pick out this is the truth. Just like with any trial, you look for the stories that line up and you ignore you, do, you determine that the stories that don't line up are likely lies. And when I say line up, I don't mean that they are word for word, but I mean that they hit the high points, right? That they tell you the same general information from a different viewpoint. And this, this, this report seems to do that. Let me start out, and I'm just going to read this to you to kind of give you uh, an idea of what this, this report is trying to do. So quote from this, from the report, for almost two decades, survivors of abuse and other concerns Southern Baptists have been contacting the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC, Executive Committee, EC, to report child molesters and other abusers who were in in the pulpit or employed as church staff. They made phone calls, mailed letters, sent emails, appeared at, at the SBC and EC meetings, held rallies, and contacted the press. Only to be met time and time again with resistance, stonewalling, and even outright hostility for some within, from some within the executive committee. This inquiry into the actions and decisions of the executive committee staff and members is from January first, two thousand to January fourteenth, twenty twenty-one. So this is a long period of time that these this report is covering. A lot of people are caught in it. There's a lot of information about what is going on. And unfortunately, the very first one that they cover, it's a man I've looked up to for years. I went to his church every year for years as a child for the Real Evangelism Conference where they would fit 21 different sermons into a three-day period. It was pure exhaustion by the time it was done. It was just a fire hydrant of messages. These were the conservative elites of the denomination. These were the people that they wanted to make sure you understood the truth of the gospel. It was uh, hellfire and brimstone type preaching, Southern gospel music, large, huge choirs. In fact, every evening they would bring in a conglomeration of choirs from different churches in the Atlanta area uh, and they would have three or four hundred people up in the boot in the choir balcony singing. It was great music, great time, great messages, and at the time everything seemed to be fine. But this first story involves the pastor, former pastor at this point of First Baptist Wood- Woodstock, um, in Woodstock, Georgia. Let me just let me just read this report and let you determine what you think is reality. During the course of our investigation, a Southern Baptist Convention pastor and his wife came forward to report that former SBC president Johnny Hunt, this he was president from 2008 to 2010, who was the immediate uh, past SBC president at the time. So what they're saying is that when this allegate when this alleged assault took place, he had just finished his second term and was no longer able to be president. So he was the immediate past SBC president at the time, had sexually assaulted the wife on July 25th of 2010. The allegations include grooming of the wife during Dr. Hunt's term as SBC president. At the time of the allegations, Dr. Hunt was also senior pastor at First Baptist Church, Woodstock, Georgia, Dr. Hunt extended his July sabbatical to mid-September after the alleged incident. The husband, an SBC pastor for 25 years, will be further known as Pastor, had a professional relationship with Dr. Hunt, whom he considered a mentor. Pastor and his wife, further known as Survivor, told us that prior to the assault, Dr. Hunt groomed the couple with flattery and promises of help and ministry. They also reported that Dr. Hunt gave an unusual amount of attention to, sur- to the survivor, including making remarks about her appearance and comments of a sexual nature and unwelcome touching, including kissing her hand. The couple stated that after the assault, they were silenced by Dr. Hunt and the staff counselor at First Baptist Church Woodstock, who convinced them that they should not talk about what happened. Recently, as, pa- as Pastor was completing his doctorate, While studying clinical counseling, conflict resolution, and peacemaking, and as survivor entered therapy with a licensed trauma therapist, they began to process what they'd experienced and contacted us with this report. We conducted multiple interviews with the couple who relayed the following information. At the June 2010 annual meeting, Dr. Hunt invited the couple to come spend some time with him and his family at Panama City Beach while he was on sabbatical for the month of July. Pastor and survivor looked up to Dr. Hunt as a spiritual father figure. Dr. Hunt is 24 years old or 24 years older than the couple with the daughter's close in age as survivor. The couple did not or did take a short vacation to the beach staying at a separate location and spent some time with the Hunts. At one point, Dr. Hunt kissed survivor on the forehead and made inappropriate comments about survivor's figure. After the trip, Pastor told Dr. Hunt that Survivor wanted to return to the beach before school started to hear Bobby Bowden speak at Highland Park Baptist Church in Panama City Church, Panama City Beach. Pastor asked, asked Dr. Hunt's advice on securing a condo for her. Dr. Hunt gave him a phone number for a condo owner in, her, in his complex. Pastor then called, and the owner told him to, to book directly on Verbo. Unbeknownst to Pastor, it was the unit next to Dr. Hunt's condo. On Saturday, July 24th, 2010, Pastor texted Dr. Hunt and asked him to keep an eye out for Survivor. Dr. Hunt responded that he would take care of her and that his family will keep an eye out. Pastor and Survivor said they trusted Dr. Hunt and were under the impression that Dr. Hunt and his family would be at the beach and Survivor could contact him if she needed anything. On July 25th, 2010, Survivor drove to the beach and made several stops. The church to hear Bobby Bowden speak her childhood home, and school in the first church her husband pastored. Upon arrival at the condo, Survivor texted her husband and Dr. Hunt a picture of the ocean, letting them both know she had arrived. Dr. Hunt texted her asking what condo she was in. I assume this was separately and not in the group chat. She responded with a number and he replied that it was right next door and told her to step out on the balcony. Survivor was surprised that the the condo her husband had rented was right next door to the Hunt's condo. Doctor Hunt and Survivor conversed from their respective balconies. He brought her a bottle of water. Survivor recalled Doctor Hunt shifting the conversation from ministry to flattery about her appearance, her clothing, and her perfume. Doctor Hunt remarked that they, he was Doctor Hunt remarked that he was hot from being in the sun, and Survivor said he could come sit in the shade on her. Could, and Survivor said he could come sit on, in the shade on her balcony. Survivor described the balconies as side-by-side with no ability to cross from one to the other. Survivor assumed that Dr. Hunt's wife and family were inside the condo unit. Dr. Hunt came into Survivor's condo and they continued their conversation on Supervisor's balcony. Dr. Hunt asked if she felt safe and she said that she did. She did not know why he would ask such a question. He then told the survivor to put her feet on his knee. He touched them while commenting on their beauty and size. At one point, he remarked that he was uncomfortable sitting outside because he didn't want to be seen, so he suggested they go inside. Dr. Hunt pointed to the bedroom and said that he guessed they didn't need to go in there. She objected by emphatically saying no. In the living room, Dr. Hunt asked about ministry and church frustrations. Dr. Hunt slid closer while Survivor was telling a story of the stress that she and her husband were under at the church. He asked her more personal questions about her life. Like, have you done anything like this before? And if she was wild growing up, she was confused and not sure what he meant. The next part of the report, I will not read verbatim as it is incredibly disgusting and evil. But suffice it to say, at this point, Dr. Johnny Hunt, sexually assaulted survivor, repeatedly though it did not come to the point of rape. It was absolutely abhorrent and evil. Finally, he stopped and left. She locked the door behind him and felt very shocked, confused, and violated. After he left, she tried to unpack her suitcase, but she fought back tears and felt overwhelmed by the shame of Dr. Hunt's sexual assault. Later Dr. Hunt texted her about coming out of the balcony, coming out on the balcony. She wanted to sort out what had just happened, so she went outside. In a brief exchange, Dr. Hunt stated that he would like to have sex with her 3 times a day. Survivor could not believe what she was hearing and could not get back in uh, could not get back inside her condo quickly enough. The next morning, Dr. Hunt texted her again to come out on the balcony at 9:30 a.m. He apologized and said that she did not need what had happened and needed a pastor instead. He asked her to forgive him. And survivors said that she would. Dr. Hunt inquired if she had girlfriends that she would tell what happened. He told her not to mention what happened to anyone. She said that she would not mention it. He invited her to come down to the beach with him and his family. She said no, but insisted and would not take no for an answer. But he insisted and would not take no for an answer. She went down to the beach and sat in her own beach chair and spoke with her husband by phone while on the beach on tuesday july 27th survivor attempted to confront dr hunt about the assault but never saw him that morning survivor saw dr hunt's wife who confronted survivor and told her that she doesn't know what survivor is doing there that survivor needed to leave and that she didn't care what or didn't care where survivor went and that survivor needed to leave that day and stop talking to her husband Survivor was very upset and called her husband who told her just to leave and come home. At that time, Pastor, her husband, did not know that Survivor had been sexually assaulted. She quickly left because she did not want to see the hunts after all that had happened. Several days later, Dr. Hunt contacted Pastor and told him that they needed to meet at Pastor's church, FBC Woodstock, on Monday evening, August 2nd, 2010. Dr. Hunt met the couple there, accompanied by Roy Blankenship, a counseling pastor at FBC Woodstock. During the discussion, the pastor learned for the first time that Dr. Hunt had sexually assaulted survivor. Dr. Hunt mischaracterized his assault of survivor, admitting to a light kiss and touching of the survivor's chest over the clothes and trying to pull her shorts down. He he stated that, thank God, I did not consummate the relationship. Survivor and pastor stated that Mr. Blankenship said that in his expert opinion, an inappropriate relationship had developed and that based on his information, it was consensual. Survivor states that at the time she believed that even though she did not consent to what Dr. Hunt did to her, she was made to feel it was consensual because she did not fight back. When Survivor attempted to provide her version of the events, both Dr. Hunt and Mr. Blankenship spoke over her survivor, and pastor stated that Mr. Blankenship told the couple that he had cleared his calendar and was going to initiate counseling for them. That week, the couple began to meet with Mr. Blankenship, who forbade them from discussing what happened on July 25th. On August 5th, Mr. Blankenship brought Dr. Hunt, his wife, pastor, and survivor in for another meeting at Hope Quest, a counseling ministry, to bring closure to the events on the 25th of July. Dr. Hunt and Mr. Blankenship stated that they could never talk about what had happened, and if they did, it would negatively impact over 40,000 churches. Dr. Hunt represented. Dr. Hunt asked for pastor's forgiveness, and pastor said he agreed. After pastor agreed, Dr. Hunt asked pastor if Dr. Hunt needed to step down from Woodstock. Pastor said no. According to the couple, they felt emotional stress and pain from the directives to forgive, forget, move on, and never tell. They shared that they have suffered financial and ministerial struggles directly related to the trauma they experienced. Dr. Hunt has remained in contact with Pastor even as recently as October 21st, reaching out every so often to partner on biblical writing and offering to help with employment. Pastor provided us with a hard drive on which he kept an electronic journal that contains entries related to the counseling sessions with Dr. Blankenship, as well as some audio recordings of the counseling and Pastor's thoughts following the counseling sessions. Guidepost has confirmed forensically that the data on the hard drive was in fact created in 2009 through 2011, which corroborates the counseling relationship between Mr. Blankenship and the couple. Guidepost investigators reached out to Mr. Blankenship to discuss the couple's report. Investigators confirmed that in 2010, Mr. Blankenship served as counseling minister at First Baptist Church Woodstock and CEO of HopeQuest, a counseling ministry. State licensing records from the time indicate that Mr. Blankenship was not a licensed counselor. Mr. Blankenship is no longer a Southern Baptist. After multiple attempts to schedule an interview with him via email, guidepost investigators decided to approach him at his office on May 9, 2022. He initially refused to speak with investigators, but then said he would speak with them for just 20 minutes. He agreed to speak with investigators in his office. When investigators told him that they... What they wanted to question him about, mister Blankenship expressed concern for survivor and pastor, but he also said that he did not want to betray a confidence. The investigators explained that they had a waiver from the couple to discuss their information, and mister Blankenship did not offer and mister Blankenship did not offer a narrative on what happened, but he said he was willing to answer yes or no questions. During questioning at times he provided more than a yes or no answer. mister Blankenship confirmed that doctor Hunt's extended sabbatical in twenty ten was not related to exhaustion. He also confirmed that there was an incident at Panama City Beach involving Dr. Hunt and the survivor. From the information he recollected, Mr. Blankenship said that Dr. Hunt had kissed the survivor and touched her chest over her clothes. He did not recall anything about pulling down her pants. Mr. Blankenship stated that he did not think he received the full story. He confirmed at the time his assessment was based on what Dr. Hunt told him and the sexual contact was consensual. Mr. Blankenship stated that he and Dr. Hunt agreed to meet with the couple the following week. They did, in fact, meet at Pastor's church. He stated that Dr. Hunt did not dominate the meeting, but he did apologize to Pastor, and Pastor said that he forgave him. When asked if Survivor gave an account of what happened, he said he could have, uh, she could have spoken up, but she stayed silent. He went on to say that Dr. Hunt was the one with the power advantage, and she, he should have been the one to stop it adding, but it takes two to tango. He said he had been around for a while and he knew how things worked. He questioned how Dr. Hunt and Survivor ended up in condos next door to each other. He called it a he said, she said situation and he had no proof. Mr. Blankenship also confirmed that a second meeting took place at Hope Quest and that Dr. Hunt and his wife, as well as Survivor and Pastor, were present. At that meeting, the couples were present to forgive, forget, and move on. Mr. Blankenship stated that he did remember Mr. Or Dr. Hunt saying that if this story got out, it could negatively impact 40,000 churches. He does not think that this was said at the first meeting, but he does remember it being said at some point. Mr. Blankenship said that he was focused on helping the couple. The interview lasted more than 45 minutes. Mr. Blankenship was guarded and hesitant to answer many of the investigators' questions, refusing to answer some while responding with details for others. He did not want to speak about anything related to his work with the couple in counseling. Our investigators found Mr. Blankenship to be credible. As stated above, he did not seek to participate in the investigation and only reluctantly agreed to speak with investigators. He reported very similar details and events to those reported by survivor and pastor, with the only, with the only significant difference being on the issue of consent. In addition to Mr. Blankenship, guidepost investigators interviewed three additional witnesses with relevant information. Witness 1 is a pastor and has been in ministry for over 40 years. He has known the survivor her whole life, and her husband's husband pastor is like a son to his, in ministry to him. Witness 1 stated that he had a conversation with pastor in 2010 and said it was like an atomic bomb. He shared that they were riding in a car and Pastor said that Dr. Hunt had made advances toward Survivor and it was not appropriate behavior. He remembered Pastor saying that Dr. Hunt had helped him find a condo to rent for Survivor. Pastor told him that it happened at a beach condo and that Dr. Hunt had kissed her, touched her chest, undid her shorts and that it may it may have stopped there. Pastor also told him that Dr. Hunt wanted to talk and the couple met with Dr. Hunt and a counselor where Doctor Hunt admitted that it was inappropriate, but told Pastor that it didn't go all the way. Witness one said Pastor told that, told him that Doctor Hunt asked for forgiveness, and Pastor forgave him. Witness one stated that both Pastor and survivor respected Doctor Hunt and valued their relationship with him, and he was not aware of any conflict between Doctor Hunt and the couple prior to this incident. Witness one has known Doctor Hunt for over 20 years and traveled with him on international mission trips. He also stated that he could never see Survivor being an instigator in this situation. Witness one says that he this has affected Pastor and Survivor's ministry and wondered what their ministry trajectory would have been if this had not happened. Witness two is currently a senior pastor at a Southern Baptist church who worked closely in the same church with Pastor for over six years. He stated that Pastor had confided in him sometime around 2012 after a conference where Dr. Hunt was speaking. Pastor told him that Dr. Johnny Hunt is not what you might think. Witness two said that pastor told him about Dr. Hunt abusing survivor. Pastor did not give specific details, but shared that it was sexual in nature. He also said the pastor felt pressured by Dr. Hunt to forgive him. Witness two shared that it, was, that it has affected pastor's ministry and he deals with anger because of it. He stated that it was very hard on Pastor when Dr. Hunt was hired by the North American Mission Board. He also shared that Survivor is an amazing person, that he observed how hard it was for her to trust people in the church. Witness 3 has served as a bivocational pastor in Southern Baptist churches and worked in local and state conventions. He is currently a minister in residence in a Southern Baptist organization. He has had a coaching mentoring relationship with Pastor and has known him for four years and said that during his work with Pastor, Pastor told him about Dr. Hunt making advances on Survivor and groping her and then subsequently covering it up. Pastor also shared that Dr. Hunt had apologized to Pastor for it. Witness three stated he had seen the hurt that this has caused Pastor and it has affected his ministry. Guidepost investigators found all three witnesses to be very credible with clear recollections of Pastor's statements to them. The witnesses are still very much involved and committed to Southern Baptist life and the convention. As guidepost investigators were investigating the couple's report, they interviewed Dr. Hunt on two occasions. During the first interview, Dr. Hunt was asked standard questions related to the actions of the EC, Executive Committee, as detailed in the messenger's motion. Guidepost investigators did not directly confront Dr. Hunt at that time, as investigators had not yet spoken to key witnesses for corroboration. During the first interview, Dr. Hunt did acknowledge that during the publicly announced extended sabbatical, he was under the care of Dr. Blankenship, or Mr. Blankenship, I'm sorry. When asked that the sabbatical was at all related to a sexual abuse matter, he replied in the negative. Investigators asked Dr. Hunt several questions about pastor's church without identifying pastor. They asked if Dr. Hunt knew the circumstances of the resignation of the senior pastor of that church, who suddenly and without explanation resigned in 2010. Dr. Hunt stated that he did not know who Pastor was, and why he had or why he had resigned. Dr. Hunt was also asked about the City of Refuge program affiliated with FBC Woodstock, a program for pastors who have a personal crisis but who wish to re-enter ministry, which was started by Dr. Hunt and run by Mr. Blankenship. Dr. Hunt spoke about pastors making bad choices, and they might say, and that they might say to themselves, "I can't believe I did this. One night slipped up." And that they are now repentant and broken, and that they should be reconciled. After interviewing several individuals with relevant information, Guidepost investigators set up a second interview with Dr. Hunt. When questioned if he knew why investigators wanted a second interview, Dr. Hunt responded that he did not know. Guidepost investigators explained to Dr. Hunt that they had received an allegation of abuse involving him, and he knew what they were talking about. Dr. Hunt responded that he was totally in the dark. In the second interview, Dr. Hunt acknowledged this time that he knew pastor. Dr. Hunt stated that he had known the couple for at least 20 years. The pastor had been converted under his ministry and that Dr. Hunt had been a strong influence on pastor's life. For a time, they pastored churches in the same state. Dr. Hunt said that while Dr. Hunt attended the 2010 annual convention, he does not remember any personal contact with the couple and does not think he spent any personal time with them. He shared that he takes time off every year in July. But he does not remember having the couple as guests when he was in Panama City Beach. But he says that he may have had lunch one time during that period of vacation. Investigators asked if, at some point, Pastor had contacted him about finding a place to rent for survivors to come back, or for survivor to come back down to the beach for a week. Dr. Hunt did not remember Pastor asking him for information, nor did he recall providing a phone number to help find a place. Dr. Hunt did state that he remembers Pastor calling to su- say Survivor was coming to the beach and that his family uh, and that his family would look out for her. Dr. Hunt remembered Survivor texting him a picture of the pier saying that she was there. When asked if he knew where she was, Dr. Hunt said that he, unbeknownst to him, Survivor had rented the condo next door, but he had no role in that. He stated that he has no idea who owned the condo next door because the building is mostly rentals. When asked if he had any contact with Survivor while he was there, he responded that it was very brief on the balcony. While on the balcony, he remembers Survivor telling him about going to see Bobby Bowden speak that morning, but did not remember her saying what else she did the day before getting to the beach. Both Dr. Hunt and Survivor described the balconies as side by side, but you could not walk through to the other side. Dr. Hunt was asked whether he went onto her balcony or entered her condo, and he responded he never entered her condo and was never on her balcony. Dr. Hunt said that after seeing Survivor on the balcony, he did not have any further contact with Survivor during the time she was there. However, later in the interview, he stated that he saw her the next day on the beach, and then, following, then the following day, his wife said something to her, and he does not know whether she changed places or just went home. Dr. Hunt said that he did not have any physical contact with Survivor. No contact whatsoever. He also restated that it was not true that he was on the balcony or in the condo. When asked specifically about whether he kissed her, pulled her out her shorts, or fondled her, he said no. He denies sexualized comments about her appearance, panties, tan line, or perfume. Dr. Hunt shared that his that his wife was uncomfortable with Survivor next door by herself because it just did not look right that she was down there all alone. At some point, he thinks his wife may have said something to Survivor, and that all he knew was Survivor was not there anymore. When asked whether his wife was there the whole time with him, he stated there may have been a brief time that she was not there because of an event at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where she may have flown in and out in one day or the next day. He said it was possible that she was not there some of the time that Survivor was there. When asked if he contacted Mr. Blankenship, the counselor, because there was a problem between Pastor and Survivor, he said that he did not contact him in regard to that, but just for general help because Pastor was transitioning in ministry and Dr. Hunt had always been a sounding board for him. Dr. Hunt remembers only one meeting with the couple on August 2nd. He said the meeting was brief and that he and his wife, along with Pastor and Survivor, Mr. Blankenship were present. Dr. Hunt claims that he never directed the couple towards Mr. Blankenship for counseling. Dr. Hunt said that he did not apologize to Survivor for sexually assaulting her during this meeting because there was no contact between the two of them. He denied saying, praise Jesus, that I didn't consummate the relationship. If there was an apology, Dr. Hunt believed it was related to Mrs. Hunt offering or offending Survivor about being concerned with her being there alone and them apologizing for her having to leave. He stated that someone has created a story on me. I would like to hear her story on this. Dr. Hunt said that the survivor had never come on to him and he never felt threatened by her. Dr. Hunt stated that he and Pastor had stayed in contact with the, contact over the years. Investigators asked Dr. Hunt if there were any similar allegations with other women. Dr. Hunt answered no. Several times during the interview, Guy posted investigators directly asked. Dr. Hunt about specific allegations of sexual abuse against the survivor, controlling the narrative through the use of an unlicensed therapist and trying to protect his ministry, 40,000 churches and the SBC, all of which he denied. The investigators asked Dr. Hunt if there was anyone else he thought he should speak with about the matter. And he said the only ones who would know would be the couple and Mr. Blankenship. The investigators asked if he thought his wife would speak with us, and he replied no saying that he doubts his wife would speak to us because her take was that we handled it and moved on. Investigators understood this to mean that Dr. Hunt had apologized for the fact that his wife had upset Survivor by telling her to leave. Throughout the interview, Dr. Hunt remained very calm, expressed little to no emotion, did not get upset, did not raise his voice or express outrage at the allegations. We included this sexual assault allegation in the report because the investigators found Pastor and Survivor to be credible. Their report was corroborated in part by Mr. Blankenship and three other credible witnesses. And Dr. Hunt, while denying physical contact, does acknowledge he had interactions with the survivor, including on the condo balcony during the relevant time period. The investigators did not find Dr. Hunt to be credible in their interviews with him. That's a lot, guys. And... I'm kind of speechless in all honesty, not because I want to be, not because I don't want to have an opinion on this, but obviously we don't know what really happened on that day. We might never know. But I can tell you this, it seems to me that the story is credible there are multiple corroborating witnesses to something taking place that day of a sexual nature, of inappropriate behavior. There is only one person in this story that is saying it didn't happen. But yet even he corroborates many of the details of the story. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Johnny Hunt did do it, I just don't know. But neither can I say that he did not do it because I just don't know. Here's the thing, guys. There were many things I didn't read in detail because even though I I gave a warning at the top of this episode that this was not for kids, some of it's not for adults either. The allegations that are in this report are heinous and disturbing. I don't know what to think. In all honesty, my brain is broken. I want to believe that Dr. Johnny Hunt, who I looked up to, is innocent and that this is just a false accusation. But to be honest with you, I can't. Because in this report, there seems to be too much evidence to the contrary. Too much evidence saying that he did it. And not enough evidence saying that he didn't. I am so tired. Of turning on the news and finding reports of pastors, deacons, and church leaders doing things. At what point will we learn? At what point will we, as believers, understand that everyone is capable? of committing evil, evil acts. That everyone is capable of what has been alleged. Sin has broken our world. It has destroyed our world. What God had created for wonderful, glorious things, we messed up. We broke. I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't have things in my past that I wish I'd never done of any nature. I'm human. You're human. We have all made horrible, horrible mistakes. And the consequences will come or have come. For many people. What I do know is this, that there is a God who gives grace and mercy and forgiveness. But many times, in fact, most of the time, we still have to suffer those consequences. Maybe not at first, maybe not for years. But God will not be mocked, and whatever you reap, whatever you sow, one day you will reap. I pray that God would give me the integrity, the wisdom, the strength, the courage to run in the face of my own evil desires because this is the reality for all humans. We cannot avoid our own sin. We can't do it. Left to our own devices, we we will make horrible decisions. This has been an incredibly depressing episode for me to record that I know for you to listen to. I have been rather monotone in how I've read because in all honesty, I don't know how else to read it. I had to detach my emotion before I lost all control of it, both through anger and sadness. Again, I want to iterate that I am not throwing stones. I am not condemning. But I am saying that for believers, we are called to be above reproach, where no one could doubt our integrity and our honesty. That no one would ever be able to accuse us of something like this because it would make no sense, because it's just not possible. Growing up, I was always told by my parents that you should never be in a room by yourself with the opposite sex because even though you may not do something, one, you're stupid, and at some point, you'll fail. Two, You don't want to have room for accusation to be lodged. We understand that many times these reports do come down to he said, she said. And you can't find the real truth. But the reality is, when the accusation is made, you have to accept it, at least to begin with as being true. And until evidence is proved otherwise, you have to investigate. If you can come to no clear answer one way or the other, many churches, I believe sometimes rightfully, will release the worker who was accused, not because they've done anything provably wrong, but because there's no other options. It would be wrong to possibly force a victim to remain in the same work location as their abuser. But at the same time, it would also be wrong to keep an innocent person in the same workplace as their false accuser. But we don't know who did what in many cases and people get hurt because of it. Don't get me wrong. I am not shaming victims. I believe you should come forward and tell the truth. Tell what happened. And we'll figure out what happened if we're honest and filled with integrity. And we'll take the proper steps. But the whole idea of this document has been that the Southern Baptist Convention has seemed to have swept things under the rug to avoid the onslaught of what was coming. And we can't do that. We can't let that be what happens. Going forward, there has to be a change. Guys, this was a dark episode. I'm going to have to end it here just for my own sanity while I try to digest all of this information. I hope that reading this has opened your eyes to a real reality of the modern-day church, many modern-day churches, I should say, in the U.S., Nobody's above reproach, and nobody should be above questioning. We should all make sure that there is a way to be held accountable in our life. And maybe, maybe one day, and I pray soon, one day we'll be healed of these sins and this rebellious heart that we all have. Until next time, guys, this is Zach. See you later.